You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of 1917. In your own time, gentlemen. Must be something big if the channel's here. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. trailer for 1917 and the story is as follows two british soldiers embark on a dangerous mission to save 1600 men from certain doom during world war one the film is starring george mckay dean charles chapman mark strong andrew scott richard madden claire de burke Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch. It is written and directed by Sam Mendes co-written by christy wilson cans joining me for this podcast review i have josh parham hello hello Dan Bear. Good morning, everybody. And Cody Derricks. Hiya. All right, so we're going to do this whole podcast in one take. No edits. <laughs> Please, two takes. <laughs> okay. Let's be clear. All right. But, well, more than that, actually. There's a lot of hidden cuts in this one. So for those that don't know, 1917 was conceived to be done in one seamless, continuous shot. That's not the case. We all know that, that that's not the case. Like Birdman, there are hidden edits and one not so uh, hidden edit in 1917. However, the effect that they're going for is very, very similar to that film. It also mixes in uh, the brutal war epicness of something like Saving Private Ryan and Dunkirk, along with uh, the grueling physicality of something like The Revenant. Um, this has been something that has been reported since the film screened a few weeks back for the first time. Now audiences are finally starting to get it 
to get a chance to see the movie as it's had a platform uh, release. Myself, Josh, Dan, and Cody have been fortunate enough to see the film already. So now we're going to give our thoughts on Sam Mendes's World War One epic. Let's start off first with uh, Josh Parham. Josh, what did you ultimately think of uh, 1917? Well, I really enjoyed this movie and there's a lot of things about it that i think it does really well uh first and foremost obviously the technical achievement of this film is just astounding like every element regarding you know obviously the cinematography but the sound the production design uh the effects all of that is really really incredible and i really enjoyed the performances in this too i think that you know, war movies don't tend to get singled out a ton for their acting, but there's some really great performances at the center of this film. And I honestly think, though, that my biggest hangup about the movie is in part with the directorial choices of the film and really the one take. I actually think that that was a big distraction for me and took me out of the movie more than it brought me into it, which is really the opposite, I think, of what that shot is supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And for that, I found myself kind of checking out of the movie a little bit and didn't find myself totally engrossed in it as much as I wanted to. But overall, I still think it's a really strong movie, but that element did keep it from becoming a great movie to me. Anyone here, show of hands, a gamer? No. Nah, not not nah. particularly. Yeah. But do, but do you all know the comparison that I would make if I were to say that this uh, movie can be yes. very video game like at times? Yes. Yes. I I can get that. Yeah. 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 I, I definitely got that sense of like third person over the shoulder walking with another character as they like dump ep- exposition, <laughs> you know. And this is all just a way to bring us into like some sort of a new environment. Um, I, I I've definitely encountered that one too many times playing uh, a rock star game of. Theft Auto or Red Dead Redemption or something. <laughs> yeah, except here you don't get the option to skip the cutscene. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's pass it over now to Cody Derricks. Cody, what do you think of 1917? Okay, so I was very excited to see this movie. I'm, I generally respect Sam Mendes and the idea of the one-take Roger Deakins cinematography had me intrigued. And ultimately, I had a little trouble kind of, like Josh said, connecting to this movie, but I, I really, really was a big hang-up for me on my watch. Um, to the point where the entire movie, I was kind of like, I don't really know what we're doing here. It kind of didn't really connect with me or I had, I found nothing to latch onto. It really just made me feel unmoored the entire time. Um, the technical achievement is um, obviously great and impressive, but I also think that there were times where the tech elements didn't always work in Unity. I'm talking specifically about the score, which I'm sure we'll get into detail later, but Ultimately, and this isn't really a spoiler, the dedication at the end to Sam Mendes, I believe his great-grandpa, uh, kind of both enlightened me and also like kind of took a little bit of the wind out of my sails in terms of this movie because it made it kind of seem like this was just a film version of Grandpa telling you his old war stories. Uh, that might sound a little glib, but I think that's really seriously what they were just going here for here, and I just don't think that's necessarily the most exciting type of war story to be telling in general. I mean, we've been telling really self-examining war stories since, you know, Platoon and before, and I just am kind of surprised that this movie just kind of shows war as is and, like, in the brutal reality, but without actually doing anything with that. I don't know. I I don't mean to sound too negative because I ultimately did respect this movie, but I just had trouble latching onto it. 
And uh, Dan, I, I actually leave you next because uh, you and I actually were at the first screening of this movie a few weeks yeah. back with Sam Mendes and really the cast and crew, everyone in attendance for a Q&A afterwards. And they did shed some light on uh, like what Cody was saying there about the dedication at the end and so on and so forth and why this was a personal project for uh, Sam Mendes to tell. So I kick it off to you. I mean, how has this film sat with you since you saw it a few weeks back? So <laughs> I think this is one of the best films of the year, no question. Um, I think obviously, as everyone has said, the technicals are kind of on a whole nother level from anything else we've seen this year. Um, and I can understand why people um, have said they have trouble connecting to the movie a little bit. Um, but in the end for me, I thought the performances were so strong, especially when combined with everything else that it really did carry me through. And I was in this, the palm of this movie's hand the whole time. And it really kind of knocked me for a loop. Yeah, uh, for myself, this was definitely um, a real gut punch of a movie that uh, really, really knocked the wind out of me. Like you said there, Dan, I was floored by this movie's technical achievement. Um, I thought it was just an epic piece of uh, filmmaking. I, I will definitely concede with both Josh and Cody's complaints in regards to, um, for some people, it, the the one-take video game-like storytelling device can definitely take you out of the movie at times. Um, I remember I was re-watching this and thinking to myself, um, there's a moment where like Mark Strong shows up, and it's like, wait a minute, all those guys were like, just right over there you're telling yeah. me you know <laughs> yeah by the time the fourth british character actor kind of slowly turned around and revealed his face i was like okay we get it yeah <laughs> <laughs> dr strange <laughs> um but I, you know so there's that and then to cody to your point i i knew heading in I, I knew already heading in, because we talked about this during uh, many of our Oscar predictions episodes here on the podcast about how this film would probably lack social significance or tie in into, you know, themes of 2019 or just modern day relevance in any way, shape or form. So, like, I already just knew that going in. And it, for me, it was just all about, like, enjoying the ride then at that point. Um, and whether or not the story would grip me. I will say this, comparatively speaking, because I know the film's marketing skewed heavily towards something like Dunkirk, um, I was much more invested in this movie than I was with Dunkirk. Because where Dunkirk for me was like um, a general overseeing um, an army map and moving troops into position and... There's kind of like that cold detachment of getting that bird's eye overview of every single element of what's going on during um, a battle. 1917 just felt so much more intimate and up close. And, uh, you know, the performances that we're talking about from George Mackay and Dean Charles Chapman, I think, went a very, very long way. You know, they're, they're, they are trying to make the movie about heroism and they talk a bit here and there about like, you know, the significance of metals and things like that. Um, I, I do think that does help to give um, their characters uh, something and also something for us to like kind of latch on to in regards to um, questioning the point of war and so on and so forth. But it, it's not, I don't think ever meant to be this, you know, grand social 
like experience, you know, that's like meant to resonate in that sort of way. Does that make sense? It does. And it actually kind of makes sense with the way the movie's texts work together, because I kind of felt and this is like projecting for sure, but I kind of felt like the movie was very much in love with its own ability to make itself, if that makes sense. Like the the cinematography is impressive, obviously on paper, but there's like one scene in particular where the music is awe inspiring when it should be like terrifying on paper with that, with what's actually happening in the plot. And it kind of just felt like it was just showing us what it could do in a way. And like, yes, obviously that is very impressive, but it didn't really make for a gripping story for me. Sure. No, I, I get that. Um, I will say that for me, the story was definitely extremely gripping because, you know, the whole point of the movie, right, is that they're delivering this message across enemy lines to save 1600 men that are walking into an ambush, but they don't know it. And by the time we do get to the end, I think the literally like one of the best scenes of the year for me is uh, when when they get to the end and you see all the men getting ready to attack Mm -hmm. and they have to uh, travel past all these guys and get through all of them. And with each passing men uh, that they that they go through. You know, we as an audience are like, holy crap, if they don't get there in time, all these men are walking to their death. And they're, and the one take, I think, helps that from a storytelling standpoint because it just shows you how big of a deal this is because you really do get the scope of it all, you know? And then you have Thomas Newman's, God help me, swelling music just eating away at your emotion in that moment. And uh, that combined with the performance, the sound, like this movie crescendos for me in like, like I said, just one of the best scenes of the year. And then of course there's that epic shot from the trailer, uh, which, God. you know, in the trailer, it's like we knew it was coming, but I think it works like 10 times better in the movie itself. When you put it with the music, the journey that we've had leading up to yeah. that moment, everything. And that's the thing for me that like when you can do something like that, like put something like that in context and it works even better, like that to me shows, you know, it's not just um, a gimmick. Yeah, it's not just a gimmick like there's really there's real craft going on here because you can't just like do that. (laughs) You can't just like create this um, out of thin air, this emotion and this experience um, you know, but you know what? I would actually disagree a little bit about this movie and its ability to showcase the real scope of this world. Cause I think that by the very nature of the cinematography, wanting to keep things very intimate with these characters, I feel like our scope is inherently limited. And when we do get to the end, I actually don't really feel like we get a sense of how many soldiers are there. Cause it looks very similar to the trenches that we saw in the beginning. And I think that this movie's dedication to want to keep things very limited in its scope and do this this one take trick with these characters, I think you end up losing the bigger picture around this the, uh, these characters in this story. And that, I think, was something that constantly prevented me from really getting into the movie as much as I wanted to. Well, what about the personal uh journey of uh, one character to uh, go through with the mission for the other. Um, To be honest, I always kind of felt a little bit removed from the characters. I know that they tried a lot to give this backstory and to give this emotional resonance to them, but I never really felt like it went that much below the surface, which 
it was a problem for a movie that wanted to be so intimate. And I think maybe more so to Cody's point, it did sort of feel like this movie's technical expertise was so proficient that it kind of focused on that a little bit more than the characters for me, even though I think it tried to give just sort of the window dressing of paying attention to the characters. In terms of the scope, the absolute best parts of the movie for me were undoubtedly when the characters were like alone. I agree, Josh, with your point about the end not feeling as like it feeling a little bit lost because we're locked into this character. So when the two characters are by themselves at the beginning or when they encounter individual Germans here and there, it really kind of points to the futility of this war in that why are we even bothering to fight when it's just the two of us in like hand to hand combat? It feels very specific in a way that like the war made everybody look kind of anonymous. Like there's several times where they're like, mm-hmm. Oh, is that one of our guys or is that them? And yeah. I, I liked that. Yeah. I don't think the movie is very interested in exploring that much more than on a surface level, but I definitely like that they did that. And they definitely, I uh, think do that through the dialogue and the scene and the, um, yeah. the back of the, the truck uh, where they're going through the land and they're talking about like, you know, just traveling through the countryside and like, what are we doing all this for? And they're talking about the dead cows and everything, you know. So I, I definitely think that there is something uh, there that you're explaining, uh, Cody, for sure. Uh, but I don't know. It's like for me, I, I, I was so I was definitely from the very beginning just so, so invested in everything that was going on. And part of that also has to do with the fact that Sam Mendes, uh, obviously, as we know, comes from a theater background. And I think that one of the things that, you know, you don't really necessarily think of so much when you're watching it the first time. But for me, when I was watching it a second time, I was thinking a lot about how not even um, choreographing like what's going on. Uh, with the blocking of the actors and what they have to do to time out specific scenes so they get from point A to point B in the time that the script uh, takes, you know what I mean? Like, like the, just the timing of everything. But also, too, where the camera gets placed so that you can capture that essence of someone's performance because you don't have the um, ability to cut to the opposite uh, reaction at any point and craft uh, a back and forth of people's performances. We're only getting one perspective at one time unless the camera moves to showcase someone else's reaction. And I think like every decision in the screenplay uh, that is made like, okay, for this line, we're going to focus on this actor's face and then we'll have the camera come around this way and then we'll be able to capture what they're thinking and so on and so forth. Like just a technicality of that, the logistics, it, it, it makes my head spin. And and sure, that, that is there. But I think for me, the other question that comes into play is what do you gain from that? And I think that the technique to shoot this movie the way that they decided to do it, I don't really get a whole lot of substance from it. I, I feel like you could have done this story and, and shot it in a more traditional way and I wouldn't have had the distraction of the one take. And it just feels like it adds – more complications to me getting invested into the story than it needed to. Okay, so I, <laughs> I there is something that bothers me about a, a lot of critique about this one take thing. And first, I want to say that I think what this added was sort of like what it added to this movie was a feeling of um, work a day. Like this is just any other day in these characters' lives, and we're literally following them on one day, and shows like really what. 
what day to day in not just any war, but specifically World War One was like. I mean, you kind of go through it all, everything that could encompass World War One throughout the one shot of this movie. And I think that is a pretty neat achievement. But I think that there's a there's a line on not just this movie, but any movie that uses a long oneer whether it is for the whole movie or just for one scene where it took me out of the movie all I could do was focus on this you know on the one take and how they were doing it and it was distracting to me and I <laughs> I I sorry to say I think that's kind of bullshit because I think that is entirely on the viewer and their inability to think about anything else because the movie is doing a lot it's doing a lot else than just having the one take and you know if you're not able to stop thinking about that for one take i think there's comes a certain point where that's not on the movie that's on you to let go of trying to analyze and just be with the movie but to be fair the movie wants us to notice it like there's a reason they chose that that filmmaking choice and i i found it Mostly not distracting. I actually quite enjoyed it for the most part. But the movie wants us to notice that, like, look at the time we're taking and there's no cuts. So I don't think it's really a bad thing to say it was something on my mind the entire time because that's kind of what they're going for. I, I think that, like, what it comes down to is this. Uh, Sam Mendes has said in interviews before that after uh, he did James Bond, he didn't really know what he wanted to do next. Um, all he knew was that he wanted to do something he had never done before. He wanted to challenge himself, right? And I do think, like I said before, this takes, like, his best sensibilities as an artistic director, an action mm -hmm. director, and a theater director, and really, really puts all of those elements together for the first time in a way that mm -hmm. um, really just showcases what an immense talent he really is. It really does feel, for me, like a culmination of, like, his career so far up to this point. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of just setting yourself in front of a challenge and yeah maybe it is all kind of centered around uh this gimmick and yes sam mendes is not uh, a writer per se i think this is the first time he's ever actually written yeah i i do i i admire uh the fact that he wanted to a challenge himself and also b give the audience an experience like we had never experienced before yes like i said before we've seen like birdman and a couple of other uh one or uh sequences and movies and so on and so forth but we've never seen it in this setting in a in a war war setting uh whether it's world war 1 world war 2 whatever it might be and you know you, like i said if you take the experience of that whole pov of like you are there feeling of something like saving private ryan in the first 20 minutes and you extend that out mm -hmm. with the emotional highs the emotional lows and the roller coaster aspect that saving private ryan also gives you on a narrative level to catch your breath at certain points uh but having that all kind of still play out from that perspective i have to say it is an experience like i've never had before in the movie theater and for me that's what i'm always looking for whenever i watch any movie in a given film year is i'm looking to see something that i feel like I it wasn't made in a factory for my entertainment consumption, but it's something that literally came from an artist's vision and point of view. And that really speaks to me. Yeah. And I'm not arguing that there isn't craft on display with this film, certainly. But I think that it just feels like it's a lot of craft going into something that 
I just don't really feel had that much substance behind it. And I think for me, that's really the biggest issue that I have. For a movie, by the way, I did like. I did like the movie. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I, it, I do think it's a really good film. And I Is Richard Madden in this cast? I got to double check. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that helps. But I, I still just think that the way that this story goes about it, and I think another thing that uh, hinders me in getting into it is that this is a movie that is about like preventing something, you know, there's these characters are going on a journey to stop an action from happening. And I think that also carries a little bit of a different kind of momentum for the story. And when you have characters that are sort of trying to impede an action from happening, I feel like it just creates a different set of expectations of what you want out of the movie. And for me, I don't know, the movie just never really got around that. And ultimately I enjoyed myself, but I walked away feeling kind of empty by the end of it. You, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what you're saying about that. You don't like the race against time sort of thing, or, or I what? feel like, I, I feel like we are. It's like we get to the end of the movie and we are expecting something significant to happen, but the significance is having like not an action happen on screen. I will say, I, I will say this in regards to that. It, it is pretty funny to me uh, that after everything that, you know, the characters go through, right? After everything that we, the audience have sat through this near two hour uh, immersive experience, uh, the fact that they don't even get a medal, a pat on the back or anything else, they get, a, <laughs> a, they get a fuck off <laughs> is like, I, I think kind of in a way, Josh, speaking to what it is that you're uh, getting at there. But I also think that does tie into what we were talking about a little bit yeah. earlier in this uh, degree of, you know, heroism and what does that ultimately mean? And, you know, the accolades and the medals that one would receive for completing a mission like this. Um, you know, once again, you may roll your eyes at it and think to yourself like, you know, oh, well. I don't really give a shit, you know, but hey, we're about to enter World War Three soon. So maybe we will start giving a shit. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a your mileage will vary type thing. I grant you that. And if it works for you on a thematic level, I totally understand that. But it just really didn't pull me in as much as I wanted it to. And I kind of felt like just sitting back and admiring what I was watching and liking many different elements of this film, but felt feeling like it was missing that kind of extra thing about it that really made it something special to me, that really gave it an immersive experience with these characters and with this setting that I just didn't feel like was quite there for me. I will say the time that the one take I found most exciting, and it probably isn't what most people will take away from it was the time when we watched a character die in real time. Oh that, my God. That, yeah. That ties into, I think what my, my earlier point about like the futility of all this, that we have to sit and watch this happen like it would in real life. I ultimately don't know if the movie is super interested in exploring that the rest of the time. But in that one moment, I totally got what they were going for at the one take. And also, too, I mean, I, I, I think it was done with visual effects, possibly, but I still don't know how they did the decoloring of uh, the face. Oh, he's that talented, Matt. Like, he's bleeding <laughs> out. <laughs> you can watch it. You watch it. It's, it's awful and terrible and 
sublime. It, yeah, his mom was a chameleon. Like, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> and that ties into the uh, performances. I, 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 we got to mention uh, the work done here by uh, especially George Mackay uh, and Dean Charles Chapman, who, you know, Dean Charles Chapman, I mean, you know, he played Tommen on Game of Thrones, which was like my first uh, experience seeing him on screen. He had a brief role this year in The King on Netflix. Uh, but here, I, I looked at him for the first time and I was like, yeah, I could see him going places. You know, given more roles and such, I think he could definitely, you know, make a very, very good career for himself. Um, but George Mikado, uh is, I think, just on another level here in a way that both surprised me, but also um, gives me such exciting uh, hope for where this man's career is heading. He's not going to get like, you know, the accolades this year for this performance that he probably should be getting, in all honesty. But... What it will do is it will get him on the eyes and the radar of a lot of other people, and this will surely bring him more exciting roles in the future, both of them. I mean, just it's really, really fantastic yeah. that they took two relatively unknown uh, talents. You know, we, we've seen George Mackay before from uh, Captain Fantastic. He played uh, Viggo Mortensen's uh, eldest son in that movie. But that was like, what, three years ago? So... You know, not, not not much of a high profile since then. I, I think for both men, their careers are going to drastically change after this movie. I mean, George Mackay, the the physicality of that performance is just like and the way he is able to just sit there and drain his face, if not of color, of emotion is is pretty spectacular on its own. That scene in the truck, especially yeah. like that is that is a moment where it's no dialogue. It's just him sitting there. And it really is one of the best pieces of acting that I've seen this year. And I think both of them really give uh, strong performances in this in this film. And I do appreciate a lot of what they're doing. And I'll be honest, sometimes I even think they're doing more than what the script is giving them. And I think that is even a greater credit to their performances. But mm. I would certainly celebrate uh, their acting in the film for sure. Um, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> co- co- co-sign, uh, the acting was what it needed to be. It didn't necessarily blow me away. I thought G. Charles Hopkins was my MVP. I thought he really captured the urgency of the, um, whole mission really well. Obviously he had personal stakes in it, but uh, yeah, I mean, we spent so much of George McKay just either watching him react in awe to something or watching the back of his head that I thought he was very impressive. He did the job, but it didn't necessarily blow me away but on the other hand i don't really know what more you could do with this movie <laughs> in terms of what he's asked to do i just kept thinking uh time and time again uh all right we're gonna have you do this take uh we need you to get from here to here uh, obviously it's a lot more complex than this uh but, but you know he runs and he's like sprinting like through the town and things like that and then i can't even imagine after like six minutes of just grueling like sprinting as he does in this then just like all right let's do it again and then it's like, take 26. George, you, you doing all right? How are those calves? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's just like, once again, the, the making of this movie and just everything that probably had to go into it is something that for me is just so, um, my head wants to explode every single time I, I start to try to figure out the filmmaking element of it. You know, I was um, reading somewhere that they would be shooting a scene uh, with a gimbal. And then they would have to, uh, during uh, an edit, which, you know, you traditionally do in a movie like this, with a wipe, uh, 
uh, over a, a rock or around a wall or past an actor's body or something. They would then hand the camera off from the gimbal onto like a line, uh, which would, you know, enable the camera to be able to like go overhead or get into positions where a human body just simply can't get into like over water and stuff. And I'm just like watching this and I'm just like, this is insane to me, <laughs> you know, like I was just, wow. The shot where it floats over the water, the body of water yeah. that we previously mm-hmm. saw undisturbed and saw, obviously there was no sort of camera there was, it truly made my jaw drop, like literally in the theater. <laughs> and then, you know, Deacon's, the goat, you know, to his credit, is still able to find, forget about like the movement of everything, still able to find, I feel, um, interesting lighting choices. Uh, you know, this movie was shot in natural light, mostly in a uh, cloud to block out the sun. And then the sun does reveal itself at one point, uh, you know, in a very, very pivotal uh, scene towards the end. And then there was also um, that amazing, amazing decision to use the flares to light up the oh, town that was at night. By far the best part of the movie. Not just Absolutely. in terms of the tech, in terms of like what we're seeing. God. Forget about the one take from a lighting standpoint. That's it's what wins gorgeous. him the Oscar yeah. in a in a walk. <laughs> mm-hmm. You even see the flares crossing in a puddle at one point from below. It's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, just the work that, and the level of detail. Oh my god, the production design. Speaking of detail, the production mm-hmm. design was actually even more impressive to me than the cinematography. If we're able yeah, to I agree. The production design is insane. Honestly, yeah. if it were not for Parasite, this would be my winner for production design. Josh, I co-signed that completely. Yeah. I actually, I, I, I'm still having trouble <laughs> going back and forth between the two, if I'm being completely honest. Well, they're completely <laughs> different uses of the same yeah. medium. I mean, this is impressive in terms of its scale and also detail. And I mean, just in the beginning when they're just walking and it's unending trenches and you had to know that they built all of that unless there's some really seamless edits in there that even I didn't catch. No, they said they built, I think they said a mile worth of trenches. And, you know, I, I think a lot about just the set dressing in terms of like uh, the dead horses. And I, I think a lot about just the mud and how they have to make that ground. Oh, yeah, the mud. I've never been so impressed by puddles. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is a really great example of excellent outdoor production design because it's, you know, we always get obsessed with the interiors, but it's really difficult to make your outdoor locations feel relevant to your movie and to feel really lived in and detailed. And this movie does an incredible job at that. Absolutely. And then uh, finally, uh, I, I, I heard maybe one negative comment about this before. I want, I want to hear some expansion on that. Um, Thomas Newman's score for me is my favorite score of the year, hands down. I think you want it was that, my, that. Mine was the negative comment, but we can come back to me. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I do want to focus in on that because I, I just want to know why. It just Okay. Okay. <laughs> let me just get this out of the way. I... I generally don't enjoy Thomas Newman's work for the most part. I think he is okay. very self-plagiarizing and he kind of found a style and a use a specific instrumentations that he likes to use and use them in kind of every movie, regardless of genre, time period, emotional output, like what we're trying to look at. So I, I always kind of go into a Thomas Newman movie with hesitation. I can kind of spot one of his scores a mile away. But also this kind of just felt like a little bit of a, copy and paste of the Dunkirk score in a way. I even went back and listened to parts of them today and they sound fairly identical at points. I mean, they both use the ticking clock sound effect. They both use kind of droning strings and it really just kind of kept me from being specifically impressed by the score. I will say he does steer away from a lot of his usual um, 
like tricks that I kind of just turned me off initially. But at the same yeah. time, I wasn't outwardly impressed by the score. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. I, I can understand the idea of him like repeating himself and such, and if you're not like on board with him already, I, I can totally understand that. But to me, the score functions as almost like a third character in this movie in terms of guiding our emotions through what Blake and Schofield are having to go through from scene to scene, whether it be um, exhilarating action, rising tension, or uh, cathartic emotional release. Uh, I, I, I really, really felt like the score was so pivotal in helping to craft uh, just what was going on emotionally uh, with this movie for us. I agree for the the first time the score really kicks in when they start running through the trenches. I, I kind of... Oh, the bongo? Yeah, that, that made me... That <laughs> yeah, made me the kind drums of are incredible. But I, I, I alluded to this earlier. The scene with the flares, which is, like, like we have been saying, extremely visually impressive. The music is kind of awe-inspiring there and it kind of is a little bit confusing as to like what we're supposed to be feeling in terms of the character because then I started thinking like okay what are we looking at here is that is that the uh, the British flair so is he safe now is that why the music is kind of hopeful but no 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 Cody you know what it was the music was literally Thomas Newman complimenting Roger Deakins's work I actually (laughs) You're right, Matt. That's what I was saying before about it being kind of in love with his own technical achievement in that it's like, wow, look at this. Isn't this impressive what we were able the to do? The grandeur of it all. Yeah. And I don't really think that's a very smart use of score, t- personally. I don't know. In, in that moment for me, when like the, the cinematography is sort of jaw-dropping and then what's happening is so like I was – I was, even though that I knew at that point that he was going to survive, I was still like, holy fuck, what, how the, is he going to make it? And because what we're looking at there is a bombed out town. And so I was like, I don't, (laughs) with the the music going with that, I'm like, is this, are we happy this was bombed out? I don't really know what we're going for here. I I really just think it was uh, capturing the audience's reaction of the scale of the production design, uh, Deacon's cinematography, and now the music cue is one of 
Wow. But the music could have been the music could have been all inspiring and wow, but also still be like in a minor key. I don't know. It just didn't well, really <laughs> For me, it essentially worked that way because the movie is striking this the the dissonance, basically like the dissonance between what we're seeing and the music. To me, was the point that yes, this looks beautiful in this moment, but like, don't lose sight of what it is and what's actually happening here. And yeah, he has a bit of a moment to rest, but it ain't gonna last for long. Well, just just actually to just stick up for Cody a little bit, um, I do actually agree with you, like on a technical level, that the swelling of that music, while it is impressive, does have a little bit of a disconnect with what we're seeing. I, I do agree with you on that. But I also think that the music for a lot of times when I don't feel like the filmmaking is showing the proper scope of the movie and what I really should be feeling, I think the music does kind of the heavy lifting to bring in that scope and while that swelling music may seem like it doesn't go with this bombed out town i think the just scope of what we're looking at is is what the music is bringing to that moment same thing at the end when he's running through that battlefield where we don't really get a sense of how many soldiers are there but because of the music we get a really big emotional moment and that is what provides a really bigger scope to the story I, I legitimately cannot stop listening to 1600 Men on repeat. Uh, that's the name of the track. I, I, I've, I've uh, read some comments that it's uh, c- compared, uh, like you said, Cody, to uh, Hans Zimmer's work on Dunkirk and also Hans Zimmer's work on The Thin Red Line. And maybe there is a bit of that there from an influence standpoint. Maybe. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised necessarily, but it's just so rousing and just so... Um, I, I feel so empowered every time I listen to it. I was I was working out the other day to it. Uh, so that should just give you an idea of like how much I love this score. And also too, yes, yes, because I know people are thinking it right now. And this is actually going to be a good segue to get into final thoughts and the Oscar talk. Um, I do love this score so much because I want Thomas Newman to finally fucking get his. I really, really think it's time that he got his Oscar. And and I think that it's – I like the score a lot too. And yeah, I hear themes in that music that have appeared in other Thomas Newman scores. But I feel the same way whenever I hear a John Williams score or a Danny Elfman score. Like I feel like – Right. I, That's I think true. When composers There's work, a signature style. Yeah, yeah, when composers work for a long enough time, you're going to hear motifs that – pop up in their other stuff so yeah i I hear that but for me i was able to get past it because i think there's enough points where it does just work so well for me that i'm just i'm just going with it all right so uh final thoughts is there anything that we just didn't talk about that you want to just mention really quick any other uh technical aspects or anything just you know about the story at all uh josh um Well, I think the only thing is that I do just want to circle back a little bit to the one take thing, because I know that obviously there's a very big disagreement about the effectiveness of that. And to me, when I talk about how I don't really like it, it's not so it's not just only that it's a distraction because I noticed the cuts and all of that. Like one takes can work for me, but they work if I feel like they're in really serve if they're really servicing the story to the film. And when they aren't working, that's when I notice what's going on. And I think when you are trying to do it for all of your movie, that means it has to be justified in every single scene. And sometimes I think it is justified, but for a lot of this movie, I just didn't feel like it was. And because of that, that's where I found it to be distracting. 
But it doesn't take away from the expertise that I found on display. It doesn't take away from these performances that I thought were really great and all these other elements that I enjoyed. But it, it, to me, it just felt like the movie was missing a certain thing to really get me invested in it from a story perspective that the one take kind of was used to gloss over. And that I really wasn't that into. Doesn't make it a bad movie, but it just didn't make it a great one to me. Yeah, and I'll just say an important distinction here, and um, you can agree or disagree, Josh, but um, I, I think it's in service not to the story like you said. I think it's in service to the experience. Sure. Do you understand that distinction? I, I, I do understand it to a point, but I also think that, you know, I don't want to get into too many comparisons at Dunkirk because these are very two different movies, but I think a movie like Dunkirk actually does a good job of creating a an immersive experience without using a one take. I think that is a movie that does show. Oh, that movie is a movie that thrives on its editing. Well, exactly. Like I said, they're two different movies. I don't want to compare them too much, but I feel like there is a way to create an immersive experience through different techniques. And 1917 chose to do one way to do it. And that way just didn't really work for me. Okay. That's fair. Uh, Dan, final thoughts. Uh, I don't actually think that I have anything to add to what I've said before. <laughs> okay. Cody? Yeah, kind of agreed. I kind of said all I need to say about this. It um, kind of underwhelmed me overall, and I really just kind of felt like it was very much grandpa telling his grandkids at Thanksgiving an old war story, which, I mean, personally to me that is not interesting, but also I don't even know if objectively that's something that film needs to be doing right now. Um but yeah, uh, it, overall, I, I, it impressed me, but it didn't really thrill me. Yeah, I, I just I, I don't want to get into a conversation about like what genres of film are like needed and not needed. Um, I, I like that. I don't want to end up in a situation where like the American Western, for example, like disappears forever. I understand like that style from that time. And, you know, thematically, uh, there were definitely a lot of issues with those movies. But I hate that the genre nowadays, it's like like war films. Um, actually, uh, we get maybe one, two a year. You know, um, and you hope that they're good. I, I think 1917 is definitely a good one to stand alongside uh, something like Dunkirk as like one of the finest war films of the decade. Um you know, and, and uh, so I, I do worry about that sometimes in regards to, you know, oh, is this movie necessarily needed and so on and so forth? Or, like, or, I'm tired of seeing the same, like, stories told over and over. Um, I will say that World War One doesn't get its due on film. And so I'm that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to at least we have a World War One film to, like, really hang our hats on and be like, yeah, this is pretty solid, you know, entry into capturing what the experience was like for this war. Um, I always kind of come come back to uh uh, the Lost City of Z and how it has like uh, a small World War One sequence in there. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, oh, my God, this is so great. Could you imagine if they made a whole movie of this? You know, and so or Wonder Woman. Yeah. Wonder Woman's yeah. a great example, too. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, I'm glad that we just finally got a full length World War One film that like can stand alongside the World War Two pictures that we have so many of. Um, last note, I have sound work in this is so freaking good. Oh, God. Um, and a lot of times in a lot of war films, it's like. I feel that they've won Oscars for sound for work that uh, was overwhelming, but not necessarily distinctive or, you know, for me, just I I didn't feel like it was anything particularly special. Uh, But this one I thought was really, really good precisely because um, it has those quieter moments. 
and it's not really bombastic at times. Something like Dunkirk, which kind of wins, I think, for having most sound. It's not really a great unity of editing and mixing, in my opinion, whereas this is. This is absolutely, you know, the, the score is perfectly balanced with the dialogue, with the breathing, with the ambient sound, with the violent sounds, and it's all it all puts you really smartly in the character's head. Also, too, keep in mind the fact that it's all one shot, the amount of Foley work that has to go into just recreating mm-hmm. everything because mm-hmm. on set, uh, I mean, like, yeah, oof, once again, head exploding <laughs> from the technical achievement. I would love to see a percentage of how much was done in post. I'm sure upwards of 75%. I wouldn't be surprised. Oh, I would say upwards of 90%, probably. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, uh, with that said, uh, great out of 10, Josh Parm. Uh, my grade would be an 8 out of 10. I really enjoyed it. It's a good movie. I enjoyed myself watching it. It didn't really cross over in, into like totally best of the year for me, but I still think it's a really good movie. Okay. Cody? I'm at a 6 out of 10, which sounds a little low, I'm sure. And I mean, all maybe like five of those six stars are for the technical achievements and the excitement of the movie. But yeah, not having something that really connected with me or something I could latch onto is a really big ding on the movie. So I'm at a 6 out of 10. Dan? I'm at a 9 out of 10. I, the technical achievement is stunning and honestly for me I was so engaged in the storytelling and how the film was doing that that I didn't even realize a lot of how strong the technical achievement was until afterwards when I'm thinking back on it and talking about it and for me that's what exactly what this sort of thing is supposed to do and i i don't think i've seen a war film this immersive since ever and it i mean that's what a war film needs to do if you're going to go horrors of war do it in a way that hasn't been done before and 1917 absolutely does that yeah i I definitely feel that way too dan because i feel like next year now any war film i see is just gonna like kind of maybe pale in comparison to this and will be uh, a, a repeat of other war films that we've seen before where 1917 just feels totally distinctive and in a class of its own. Mm. I think it will stand the test of time, actually. It's not just a a technical achievement of the year, but I think it can stand up there with some of the technical achievements of the decade, actually. And for myself, um, it's a 10 out of 10 movie. Uh, You know, this is one of those instances where, you know, probably in the past I would have given it a 9 out of 10, but uh, Josh Parham has uh, encouraged me to just, you know, if I really, really love something, to really go for it. (laughs) And I I do think that there is something to be said for uh, the fact that, you know, like I said, it, it, it's such a singular experience of one unlike any other that I've seen before. Um, and I really just do feel that that's going to help carry it through. It's one of the finest films I've seen this year and definitely one of my favorites um, of, of, of even the decade. Actually, I would put this and Dunkirk uh, right near the top of best war films I've seen in the last 10 years for sure. Uh, so with that said, uh, late comer to the Oscar season. What are we thinking right now? Because I have some very interesting thoughts uh, that have crossed my brain recently in regards to 1917's Oscar prospects. Um, I'll just get this out of the way. I think there's a chance Sam Mendes misses the director nomination. It could happen. Crazy to me. I know. But hear me out. What if this is more seen as Roger Deakins' achievement and not so much Sam Mendes? I mean, to your point, we barely talked about Sam Mendes on this very review. It was all about Deacons and Newman and the text and the actors. And yes, the director is wrangling all that, but I've, it, it's not something that people are, I think, discussing as much. I mean, that's very anecdotal, but still. 
The other thing about Sam Mendes is that right now in the conversation for Best Director, there are like those top three candidates where you've got Scorsese, uh, Bong Joon-ho, and Tarantino. And then you got Sam Mendes, who's sort of in that spot where it's like, yeah, you're probably in, but you're not really like guaranteed a slot. And that's like that can be even more dangerous than the number five spot where you think you're safe, but then you get leapfrogged by somebody else. I, I just sense that there is a uh, like we like you just said, Cody, a lack of passion for him personally. And I do think that the because it isn't I don't think in the running to win Best Picture as like the number one or number two film that also hurts his chances for being a mainstay in this category. Uh, I, I would not be surprised if this movie got all of its technicals. And he missed because it's like one of those things where where is the blurry line between, you know, the technicals doing their job and the director doing his? Did the director just, you know, explain what he wanted and everybody else did what they were supposed to do? And as a result, we should be recognizing them instead. Like, I I, I don't know. But I will tell you this, though. um, He's not getting from what I can tell um, the singular praise for him specifically that every other element is receiving on their own specifically. On the other hand, the director's branch loves war films. I mean, mm, just in yes. the past decade, there's been three or four nominees. That is true. That is very true. Um, and also, too, it's been a long, long time since he's been in that category. American Beauty 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think that he is the type of director that they would definitely want to honor for something like this. Um, and I mean, unless we forget, <laughs> fucking Mel Gibson got a Best Director nomination for Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> I was trying to not say the name. way yeah. a worse <laughs> film than this. I was and really trying not to say the name Mel Gibson, but yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, I I could see I could see it happening as like I in it's in within the realm of possibility. But I don't think it's within the realm of probability. Right. He hasn't missed anything that would lead me to be like, oh, maybe he's on the bubble. He's gotten everywhere he needs to so far. So I can't really with full confidence predict a snub. It's outside of just a gut feeling. But I mean, anything could happen. So I was going to say, so did if you look at like director snubs in recent memory. So did um, Martin McDonough, because, you know, I think people once again in a kind of similar situation, yeah, the screenplay is good or, you know, some people thought the screenplay was good. Uh, performances are really, really carrying this movie, you know, and it, it's just like he got lost in that conversation as a director. Um, and I, I, I find that there are times where that can happen, where people get so held up on other things. And um, the director's race really is in many ways like the acting races where the director is a star on the campaign trail. And I think that that's extremely important. And this year, Bong is definitely a star. Tarantino is, you know, Tarantino. So is Scorsese. You know, those guys need no introduction or anything like that. Um, But I can't help but feel like there might be a surprise passion pick that might come from nowhere to uh, supplant him at some point. And and definitely what would be uh, definitely a snub and a a surprise, you know, in many ways. And to your point about definitely like eight or nine directors solidly in the running for the final five. Mm-hmm. But I, but I don't think he's one of the ones that would potentially fall out. Okay. To your point about 2017 and three billboards kind of also what maybe kicked McDonough out was that there was a lot of 
passion and excitement for nominees that were seen as maybe more of a long shot. I'm looking at like Jordan Peele and Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. And sure. Yeah, they both managed exactly. To get in, not just because of the like, I mean, obviously because of their achievement. I think they're both well-directed movies, but also because people were excited to nominate those specific yes. people. And I think you yes. can maybe see something specific this year, uh, similar this year. I, I think so too, definitely. Because, it's, it's, you know, to, to, to your point, Cody, if people don't emotionally latch on to this movie in a way that feels urgent and necessary, and it just feels like it kind of walked into the party late, planted itself, and didn't have to really do much effort to do so. That's the thing. I feel like we've been talking about this movie as like 1917's come for like eight months yeah basically and it just kind of felt like guaranteed and it, it already had its spot like secure essentially you know i'm yeah. gonna say this though like if the thing with martin mcdonough he you could say that he missed the director spot because people were honoring him for his screenplay yeah they feel like they had to vote for it there if they liked the movie which left them you know this that slot and best director to go for a more passion pick i as much as the screenplay is good, I don't think it's people are jumping all over themselves to vote for it for best screenplay. No, no. But what they are jumping on themselves to vote for is cinematography, the sound, know, production but design. None of those you know? things have Sam Mendes attached to them is what I'm saying. All right. You know, if they want to honor Sam Mendes for the vision, the only place to do it is in best director. So picture director. Um, screenplay's not happening. George Mackay, sorry, that's not happening. Uh, cinematography, that's a win. Yeah. I don't see what else could be at this point. Yeah. As I said, when they announced the ASC list, it's nice to know who will officially be losing to Roger Deakins for 1917. (laughs) Right, because, like, who comes in second place? Like, Hollywood by default, I guess? I don't really know. Joker? (laughs) Both sounds, sound editing, sound mixing are in... Uh, Thomas Newman's in for score. Uh, production design is also, I think, solidly in. And I think a threat to possibly win if there yeah. really is passion yeah. uh, for this movie. I, I still think Hollywood is winning that. But I, no, no, no. no. I, I agree, Josh. I, I think Hollywood's taking it, definitely. But I would say 1917 is definitely number two, probably. I mean, yeah. sure. I mean, because remember during the early weeks of the guilds when 1917 was kind of missing a lot, the one place it did show up in was at the Art Directors Guild. Yeah. I'll be very curious to see how it does perform there and also uh, BAFTA and so on and so forth. Uh, it made the makeup and hairstyling list this year. So do we think that Which that could be a happening. surprise? I mean, like all of those war wounds and i called this matt if you remember when we first i do remember you saying this yeah because all of those wounded soldiers like all of them there are so many and like the sheer scope of the work that they had to do on this is just like kind of mind-boggling right and because the wounds and stuff have to sometimes appear in real time essentially i mean that maybe is also visual effects but they can make a strong case for it if they want to Mm-hmm. Visual effects. What do we think there? Made the shortlist for visual effects. I think it could happen. In a I think if they Dunkirk really hammer home, know. yeah, I think if they really hammer home that, well, Dunkirk didn't make it, right? No, Dunkirk didn't yeah, make Dunkirk it. Dunkirk didn't. Make it. Was, yeah, like, Dunkirk didn't it, make this it. Could be the one that makes it, but like I, I feel like that's good precedent for it not making it. <laughs> sure. I will say this: this movie definitely has more visual effects than Dunkirk yeah. did, which was heavily more practical i think if they hammer home the like if in their um the bake-off uh, presentation which is happening probably like right now um if they 
if they hammer home like, oh, we had to hide an editing cut here and you didn't even notice it, did you? And blah, 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 like that. I think that would be even more impressive to me than like the bombs exploding. And then for best film editing, oof, uh, this is really, really tough uh, only because it has I, I remember with Dan, when we first saw the movie, I walked out and immediately was like, there's no way it's getting a best film editing nomination. If Birdman didn't get a best film editing nomination, this is not getting yeah. a best film editing nomination. We both said the same thing. But <laughs> it continues to keep popping up in some places uh, with uh, critics. And it, it's just making me wonder, like, is there like are people going to overlook um, the the fact that it's like meant to look like one take and do for this what they didn't do for Birdman. I don't know, but I I am leaning more towards no. I'm I'm surprisingly more mixed on it though than I thought I was going to be. Matt, if Birdman, which was nominated at the Eddies and won Best Picture, yeah. couldn't get an editing nomination, I don't think that's happening for 1917. All right, well, hey, consider me convinced. I'm officially a no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that was easy. And so um, I remember, like, Dan, when we saw it at the premiere, I remember uh, walking out of the theater and telling you, well, this movie's winning four Oscars walking in the door uh, for cinematography score and both sounds. My question to all of you uh, is, do we think that that is happening as of today or do we think that something else is happening? I think it has two of those. I think it has cinematography and score. I'm not convinced on the sounds quite yet. I really do think Ford v. Ferrari is putting up a really good fight for them. And right now, that's actually my prediction that that movie's going to win that those awards. Um, I think Ford v. Ferrari could take editing and both sounds, I actually. I agree. And those all sometimes usually, not usually, but a lot of times all go hand in hand. Yep. If I'm being completely honest, though, I, this is one of those instances where I would like to see a split in sounds. And I think it would be well-deserved with 1917 taking sound editing and Ford v. Ferrari taking mixing. Oh, I'd flip it personally, but yeah, I'd actually really? go in the opposite direction. I actually think 1917 is a better showcase in the mixing than it is with the editing. Wow. Okay. I see. I'm thinking of all the Foley work and everything that had to go into uh, 1917. I mean, that's, that's true, but I also feel like the Foley work, I, I, I don't know. For me, it just did kind of sound like all the other war movies I've heard before, whereas I think the mixing does a good job of getting you into that perspective of going from different locations. Like, I mean, I think about that moment when the singing happens, like that's a really Mm. great moment of sound mixing within the film. And I think the movie is a better showcase of those skills rather than the effects work, the the sound effects that they create for it. All right. So either way, uh, you know, split would be nice to acknowledge both films. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right, very good, guys. Josh, where can I find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at J.R. Parham. Cody Derricks? You can find me everywhere at CodyMonster91 and check out my horror movie podcast. You can find us at Halloweeners Pod. Dan Bear. You can find me on Twitter at Dancing Dan on Film. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of 1917 here on the Next Best Picture podcast. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, and also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time.
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.